I found the bungalow and rang the bell. My client answered the door. He was almost my height, close to six feet, but only if you counted his 18-inch ears. He wore only a baggy pair of shorts, held up by brightly colored suspenders. His shoulders stooped so badly he had to secure his suspender tops in place with crossed pieces of cellophane tape. For eyes, he had twin black dots floating in the center of two oblong saucers. His white stomach, nose, toes, and palms on a light brown body made him resemble someone who had just walked face first into a freshly painted wall. I'm Eddie Valiant, Private Eye. You the one who called? Yes, I am, he said, extending a fuzzy white paw. I'm Roger Rabbit. His words came out encased in a balloon that floated over his head. The rabbit ushered me into his living room. The angular furniture reminded me of the upward-reaching spires in caves. That, combined with the extremely low ceiling and stale air, gave the room the closed-in nature of an underground burrow. Perfect interior design for a rabbit. The bunny opened a liquor cabinet and brought out an earthenware jug emblazoned with three X's. Drink? he asked. This is Dark and Stormy Nights, the podcast where we read the first page, and only the first page, of every novel ever written. I'm your host, Ben Blackberg. And I'm your other host, Ben LeBate. And tonight, we're reading Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolfe, published in 1981. And our guest tonight is Morgan Pielli. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Ben. How are you guys doing? Well, we're doing. <laughs> doing so i'm super excited about this book because it's one i've heard a lot about and how different it is from the movie Mm -hmm. has have any of you read this book no i haven't no or seen the movie i have seen the movie uh this is where i confess that i have not seen the movie actually Oh. oh it was one of those things that like came out when i was right of age but wasn't actually watching movies right and i haven't had Well, I've obviously had the opportunity to see it in the past 30 or so years, uh, but it has never come up at the right time. So I haven't actually I've read the Marvel Comics adaptation. I think it was Marvel. Didn't know there was one. There's always one like (laughs) for that stretch between like 1975 and like 1998. There's always a comics adaptation. Right. And a novel adaptation written by Alan Dean Foster. Mm hmm. I saw this movie in the theater when I was a kid. I was super young, so young that um, my parents had to walk me to the bathroom in the middle of it. So I missed, there's a particularly traumatizing scene, which I won't spoil for you, Vin. Oh, the the shoe? Okay, yeah. 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 I, I missed that the first time around. So I, I came back to the theater blissfully unaware of why everyone's eyes were red. And- <laughs> that would be very funny to like, to to come back and you're still like, like, oh yeah, this is a fun you know just a fun lighthearted show and everyone's crying and you're like geez who died and then someone throws their their popcorn all over you i read somewhere that that scene was originally animated and filmed with uh a hat i think it was a hat and oh no it was earlier to establish that 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 um turpentine can kill the tunes the scene where eddie valent has this hat that's like a cartoon hat that's on his head and i think he like showers in turpentine or something with it and it goes down the drain and like you can see the eyes still alive as it goes down the drain. And they Ooh. decided that, that was just too much for a kid's movie. But they did film that. Huh. Blank Check did a uh, a series on Zemeckis. 
Oh, nice. Uh, sorry, if you know the, the podcast Blank Check, where they I cover do. a filmographer's, or excuse me, a director's filmography. Yeah. Yes, yeah. A filmographer's, a filmographer's directory. <laughs> uh, and, Specifically um, when they like hit a certain level of success where they've got that one movie where they can do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. And whether that pays off uh, or not. Right. And uh, so they, 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 they covered Zemeckis and like one of the funny things about this movie now is thinking about like, you know, like back then it was like, oh my gosh, like, how do they do that? You know, how did they get like Eddie Valiant to seem to be interacting with this cartoon? And now, of course, the, the great mystery is like, how can you have like Warner Brothers and Disney properties in the same movie? Yeah, <laughs> that was arguably a harder feat to accomplish. Definitely. I mean, from what I understand, there's a lot of negotiating between the studios just for that piano fight between Daffy Duck and Donald Duck. Like that in and of itself was a big operation to make happen, regardless of the actual animation and, you know, filming of it. Hmm. Well, so, uh, Morgan, I, I, I take it that you're a big fan of the film. Um, I am. Yeah. I mean, it's animation, which I love. Uh, the director, I, I've always enjoyed Robert Zemeckis, though he's kind of fallen off a little bit in recent years. And the director of the animation was a fascinating gentleman uh, whose name I wish I could remember, but he literally wrote the book on animation. It's still taught in animation schools to this day. There was a really good documentary about him, actually, done by a Bard student. Uh, the movie's called Persistence of Vision, and it's about that animation director's 20-year attempt to make a Thief and the Cobbler animated movie. It's fascinating. Oh, that's uh, is it Richard Williams? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think so. Yes, no, I, I know the, the the Thief and the Cobbler has come up a, a bunch uh, in my own listening uh, as like uh, a passion project that like, like he would take commercial work and then like put that money into the movie and it was, uh, yeah, uh, a feat of animation. It was, and it's a tragedy. I mean, he, it's an example of someone you know, that, that phrase, the uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good or the complete. I mean, it's it's that writ large. It's there was this amazing sequence, which you can find on on YouTube of this genie character shuffling a deck of cards and every single card is drawn out. The backs are beautifully ornate backs and every frame, every card is visible on either one side or the other. And the sequence is incredible. And for some reason, it wasn't quite right. So he threw it all out and had it redone at least once, if not twice. And it was that sort of perfectionism that kept him from ever actually, you know, making the progress that I think he wanted to make on it. Wow. It's a stunning documentary. I, I, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. Um, and But because of that, you have this pedigree on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, both in terms of the director, in terms of the animation director. And then the cast is incredible, too. Um, Bob Hoskins is a phenomenal comic actor and i don't feel like he gets enough credit for that well you know it's so funny coming into this uh i mean vin you haven't seen the movie but you have of course seen stills from the movie oh yeah i'm certainly familiar with the concepts <laughs> uh right uh, you've you've of course dreamed the entire movie through cultural osmosis yeah yeah <laughs> but uh it's so interesting coming in to read this first page and look at the cover and like you know my first thought with the cover is like, that's not Eddie Valiant. Mm. Like Eddie Valiant, despite his last name, uh, is kind of a schlub and like a little bit of a sad sack, uh, but also like a tragic, you know, and comic character or uh, tra he, he, he's a tragic character acted in a comic fashion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Um, but yeah, no, Bob Hoskins is really great. Uh, I would yeah. 
highly encourage any listeners to look up on YouTube the behind the scenes footage of Bob Haskins, Hoskins rather, performing a lot of the scenes against the green screen when he goes into Toontown. And it's just him, nothing else on the screen. And it's incredible to watch him figuring out how to perform these scenes with nothing around him, not even like a tennis ball on a stick. Mm. Yes, a a tennis ball on stick technology. uh, (laughs) It's really not invented yet. It's come a long way since then. But it is, I mean, it is interesting to think that like today, if you were an actor, you may think like, okay, like at some point I will have to do this. Um, But coming from like Bob Hoskins generation, like I, I don't know what, like he, he, he was, I mean, uh, a, a little assumption here on my part, but uh, I'm going to say he was a theater person. Uh, That's originally. my guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not what, positive, but yeah. I mean, uh, he, he's English, so I'm just playing the odds. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, like to imagine, I mean, I don't know, maybe that maybe that helps in some ways, mm. uh, since at least some theatrical productions uh, do a little bit more sort of mind's eye. Uh, that's true. And you're you're playing bigger when you're on stage versus on TV or film normally. And mm. this is a movie that really encourages playing big, playing to the yeah. back of the room. Yeah. Although like, oh, like thinking about when uh, when we learned that his brother died. Yeah. The tuned like again, like like that's that's not a that's not played cartoonishly in a way, even though it is a very cartoonish setup anyway. Right. Uh, sorry, we're we're not here to talk about the perfection that is uh, Richard Williams' animation uh, in the movie. No, no, we're here to talk about the perfection that is this first page. Mm. Morgan, you 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 knew there was a book, right? Yes, and there's a sequel too. I yeah. don't remember the name of it, um, but I believe it's like a cross country journey or something. Um, yeah, I, I was familiar with the book from what I remember. I, I should have done my research before coming in here. No, you shouldn't have. <laughs> we don't do that here. Awesome. Um, I seem to recall that it was much more of a social commentary. I mean, without being too deep into it, I mean, tune rhymes with a derogatory term uh, from American culture. And I believe that's not by accident. Mm. That was something that the writer was intending. That's interesting. Yeah, this is I didn't know this was I did. I never knew that movie was based on a novel until like a year ago, Mm. uh, at which point I downloaded it instantly and have not read it. (laughs) Well, you are one 264th of the way through. Mm. I'm, I'm guessing um, I, I really like this first page. I feel like it does a really good job of subtly world building. You've got a good sense of the incongruity between uh, of the world they have in terms of how humans and these other creatures interact. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's really interesting. I definitely want to read more after having read that. Yeah, I'm very curious how sustainable this approach is mm. of of sort of like parody and uh like just trotting out all the cartoon bits like i wonder how long like i wonder if that outstays its welcome or if he like like i wonder how artfully that that persists throughout the book that's a good question i mean it's it's essentially a high concept it's almost a high concept sci-fi novel in a way yeah and those live or die by the execution. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was successful enough to be turned into a movie, so I have to assume that he did it at least on some level artfully. Although I've also read sections of Ready Player One, and I'm shocked that that book is as successful as it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and especially like in in the 70s and 80s, uh, sometimes things uh, experience success through mo- a matter more of timing and hitting the right handful of people. Right. I could definitely see this in a different era becoming well known just for the novelty factor of it. Yeah. 
but I, it, I, evidently it had more to say than just the novelty of it. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I'm a lover of, of film noir and, and noir writing in general. And I, I like how this is leaning hard into that. Yeah. You know, the, she, she walked into my office with legs like pillars of heaven, that sort of writing, but with a cartoon character being the descriptive subject. Yeah. Let's get into the text, please. So our first line is I found the bungalow and rang the bell, which is, I think, uh, it, it doesn't say a lot, but it, it puts us right in that noir headspace. Mm. I feel like, yeah. I mean, the sentences are all short and clipped and to the point. Mm hmm. And like also bungalow is that kind of word that like is weird in a lot of settings, but in noir somehow it like, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to phrase this. Like you find bungalows in noir. Right. Yeah. It's the, it's the spaceship or space station, uh, for, for science fiction. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like if you go to a space station and it's, uh, a rom-com you're like okay but it's like a science fiction rom-com if you go to a bungalow you're like oh there's gonna be a body somewhere yeah right uh, possibly in a pool uh you know it's also a very california word yeah and, and type of domicile so you know right away like where this is set the kind of environment you're in the kind of weather like everything is set up just with that one word yeah yeah it's also that that sort of interesting relationship between noir as a literary genre and hollywood specifically mm. and like southern california that i think sort of plays into that familiarity between the two uh, concepts right now is a bungalow a big house would that be described as almost a mansion i think a bungalow is like when you decide that you have the money for a mansion but you don't want to deal with something that big i see so it's setting up the you know the kind of social status of this person that he's going to interview too and then the high status low status relationship between the two first characters that you're introduced to i i don't know that bungalow is a high status thing okay like i think of bungalow as like a, i mean a bungalow is small mm -hmm. uh usually like i kind of think of it like someone bought a lot of land and then subdivided it into a bunch of places mm. and like a writer who just made his first script sale uh, right is in a bungalow or it has been placed there by a studio that owns the bungalows um like yeah like a, that's someone that's a someone, good point. Who, someone who lives in a bungalow works for someone else right yeah is, i guess how i would put it um and it's curious like like you point out those first two lines i mean that's just straight up california noir mm -hmm. you know uh i found the bungalow my client answered the door there's nothing interesting i will say about that nothing to set this apart from uh any other particular novels uh in this setting mm -hmm. uh, and we only really get to the premise in that third sentence mm. but i we, we we get it pretty hard in that third sentence i think yeah yeah uh which i think is probably a good decision but it does raise i mean this whole third paragraph is just given over to describing a cartoon character mm -hmm. which it's interesting to me only because it seems like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the movie, uh, is like a perfect setting. Uh, it, it, a film is the perfect media for this sort of setting, like mixing noir and cartoons, like as a film. Uh, as a book, I just feel like like he's going to have to do a lot of work to describe like the cartoonishness. Um, and also, he'll, he'll, I imagine... Uh, he'll run into uh, 
an issue that sometimes comes up in like science fiction or fantasy where someone describes something which is literally true in the science fiction or fantasy world, but which sounds like metaphor mm-hmm. or merely poetic license, mm. you know? Uh, right. So I, I, I wonder how, I wonder how he'll thread that needle. Yeah. I there's, guess. there's a few different ways to handle that. And like, you really do run the risk of diminishing returns. If, if you keep going into the detail every time, um, but one of the, and I don't know if this is what he's going to do, but uh, one of the tricks that I think usually works pretty well is set it up strong in the beginning so that it's in everyone's mind and then sort of ease off the gas. And then people will be accustomed to picturing like, you know, this character is a talking dog because you say, okay, then we talked to Gary. He was a dog and you're, you're already, you're picturing a cartoon dog because you're already in that mindset. Right. Right. So we no longer have to call out the word balloon until somebody grabs it and uses it as a a club yeah exactly yeah Mm -hmm. you don't have to describe the eyes as a dot inside of a big white saucer every time like the different shape saucer because you kind of get the the idea that that's what they're going for yeah it definitely seems like they're going for that because you know that second that third paragraph is you know leaning hard into that and it gets a little bit less a little bit less as you go until he's going to the liquor cabinet and he's not bothering to describe like his gait or anything about you know, his mannerisms, how cartoonish they are. There's no sound effects as he walks. You just kind of intuit at that point. Although he does pull out specifically a cartoon booze jug. He does, but I really like that because that mm-hmm. is some really good brief world building. Just this nice little nugget of information about how tunes are treated differently than humans. Yeah, like I'm very curious as to like, because the, the half line at the end of this page is about the relationship between tunes and humans and alcohol. Hmm. And it looks like he's going to give us a whole paragraph on that, that I'm actually kind of curious about. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Like, especially because that's such a weird thing to dwell on in the context of a human tune world. Like there are so many other logistics to get into, but because it's noir and because they're going to be talking about crime and theoretically murder, um, they're talking about vice Mm-hmm. I also find it interesting that he goes into great detail describing the interior of this bungalow, and he doesn't reserve any time for describing the exterior as he's standing outside about to ring the doorbell. Mm-hmm. I think that might be partly because, like, uh, as Ben suggested, we're supposed to understand the the exterior nature of a bungalow as being kind of generic. Right. Uh, and it's it's a contrast between him walking up to something very classical and then stepping into something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do we want to get into the large paragraph where he's describing uh, Roger Rabbit? Yes, let's. I like the detail about the cellophane tape holding up the suspenders, but my brain keeps going to, well, that would never hold on fur. (laughs) I keep forgetting, like, oh, this is a cartoon character. Physics don't apply. Yeah. Yeah, that is uh, sort of the interesting contrast, because, like, specifically saying cellophane tape really tells you something about the texture Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we all know how shitty cellophane tape can be. So he really sort of draws your attention to it before walking away from it. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. And I don't remember him having that. And I could be misremembering, but I don't remember him having that detail in the movie. He had the suspenders, but I don't recall any like X's of tape holding them in place. Yeah, I don't think so. I think his design is generally changed because he's also not brown in the movie. That's true. Um, yeah. Which I think... uh you know, from a cartooning standpoint, makes a lot of sense as a change to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but also, d- 
describing him as someone who just had just walked into a freshly painted wall is that kind of great weird noir metaphor that right. like everyone parodies but when you go back and read the original stuff it's like oh they really did write like this and it kind of works really well a lot of the time <laughs> because it's just so weird yeah i think i mean it definitely catches your attention sorry oh uh, no i was gonna say that like um this is the one place and maybe because it is set off so much as an obvious metaphor or you know uh poetic license that it it you know, the, the white spots on him made him resemble someone who had just walked face first into a freshly painted wall. Uh, what I, I do love that because like you can, you can, like Vin said, like imagine it as a sort of, uh, in a standard noir where, you know, someone is described with like a flat nose, like they just walked into a wall or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, like describing someone who was a tune that way, um, besides the fact that it's also sort of like kind of a classic, uh, cartoon character sketch, you know, like mm-hmm. the white stomach. Um, uh, I love it because uh, it describes uh, him pretty clearly uh, because it kind of stops you for a moment, or it stopped me for a moment, I should say. Um, it's always funny when people talk about like, oh, this is the way the the sentence works. And it's like, well, that's the way it worked for you. Like, <laughs> let's just be honest here. Uh, like uh, the way that like, it, it kind of stopped me for a moment just to imagine him, imagine him like walking in, into the wall that would end with him having a uh, stomach, nose, toes, and palm contact to the wall, hmm. um, which like I can totally imagine in a cartoon. Like, yeah, it's it's in character. Yeah, right. But like, you you can see him like as a rabbit with like a long nose, uh, getting squashed by that wall hmm. uh, <laughs> when he walked into it. Yeah, and then we like it's interesting to me that Eddie Valiant gets a cartoon name. That's a good point. That is a very on the nose name because like. Like, this is a parody on several different levels, and it's interesting to see the sort of interplay when those concepts bump into each other. Yeah, because when you think of a normal, normal, a noir detective-y character, they tend to have fairly almost generic names. Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe. They're not, like, there's nothing truly exceptional about them. I mean, I guess Mike Hammer is is more in line with Eddie Valiant's style. That's, conventions. Uh, that's a little later, but... yeah. That is, yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah. And that's almost more of a play on noir than, than noir itself. But also yeah. that is a name. Like, there aren't a lot of people named Valiant as far as I know. True. Oh, there yeah. is. There's Prince. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. That's true. Then maybe they're related. That's, uh comes from the, the newspaper cartoon strip mm-hmm. lineage. Possibly in the sequel. Yeah. yeah. Actually, sorry. Uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but do you guys know anything about Gary Wolf? No. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, I would be curious to know if he's written anything beyond the two novels of this, if, if he has any other works out there. I, I was just thinking, like, I would be very curious to hear him talk about what led to this novel. What was the, like, spark where he was like, like, I can imagine it, you know, like, you're joking around with some friends about, like, how, what a terrible detective Bugs Bunny would make, you know, <laughs> uh, in a noir. Kind of the, cla- like... You know, like, oh, who would be, like, a really bad detective? Like, oh, like a stoner. Like, okay. Like, Big Lebowski. You know, like, uh, gosh, I uh, I do see a bunch of things in his bibliography, but nothing that I know of. No, some very interesting titles, though. Like, Killer Bowl, Space Vulture. Did he come from sci-fi? Does it look like a lot of his work is science fiction? It looks like yeah, it might sort of run the, the gamut. Hmm. Um, in terms of like, there's something called the resurrectionist. 
Uh, actually, maybe it's more science fiction, but hmm. I mean, this is an interesting it's an interesting premise because it really does kind of toe the line of almost magical realism. Yeah, you have because the laws don't like science fiction is usually grounded in certain physics laws, um, certain ideas that they're building out of. Whereas this it really is like anything goes so long as it meets the needs of the metaphor that they're going for, mm. which I guess would explain the name Eddie Valiant. I mean, it is that sort of. It's a magical realist style name that is speaking directly to the reader in terms of how we should feel about this character. Yeah, apparently he's also featured in a a yearly anthology called Amityville House of Pancakes. <laughs> um, so I, th- I think his genre is sort of like weird fiction. Right. Uh, but it does look like he's been working from the 70s to at least 2013. Hmm. Oh, that's when the sequel came out. Oh, was it that recent? Who whacked Roger Rabbit, November 29th, 2013. Or is that the the third? Oh, it might be the third, actually. Yeah, it must be the third, because I, I seem to recall reading about the sequel years ago. Although that is years ago. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm fairly sure that's in the future. <laughs> uh it's the year is two thousand. Hmm. Uh 2013 to me feels like two years ago. Yeah. Which is yeah, uh, it is the third. the The second is who plugged Roger Rabbit. <laughs> that is an incredible title. Mm. I wonder. Uh, it looks pretty from 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 a brief skim of the Wikipedia mm. uh, article, mm. and this goes back, Morgan, to Vin's point that we don't do preparation. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, it does look kind of different from the movie. Yeah, now, I, I mean, I just want to, oh, I'm just, this is one of those things where I'm like, I don't know that I want to read the book, um, in part, just because, like, uh, I know the movie so well and enjoy the movie so much that, like, so much of my reading would just be like, how is this different? Mm-hmm. But I I would definitely want to hear, uh, want to hear him talk about this. Yeah, yeah, I, would, I agree. I'd be very curious to know where this came from. Yeah. And like, you know, so he wrote three novels, got turned into a movie. Uh, apparently he filed lawsuit against Disney for royalties. As one does. It seems inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> it seems, you know, on a, uh, an episode that starts talking about uh, Alan Dean Foster mm-hmm. writing the novelization. It's like, well, you know, we, sh- we should mention something about Disney uh, needing to pay royalties. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, apparently Disney said that Wolf owed them money. Wow. They have very good lawyers to pull that off. <laughs> I love that like at the end like like, well, since we created the character, it's like, no, but I wrote the book. It's like, no, <laughs> there's no book. You don't exist. That that might be itself a fun novel. Um, but we're not here to give ideas to Gary K. Wolf. But if he's listening, seriously, give us a ring. Mm. We've got some bangers. It does look like Killer Bowl is about violent football. Oh, okay. Wow, my mind didn't go there at all. Huh. I was thinking pasta. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking say, like some sort of sentient ramen or something. I mean, uh, Killer Bowl is 1975, which firmly puts it in the, the era of uh, dangerous future sports. Yes, it does. You're right. Yeah. Rollerball era. Uh, yeah. One, of the, one of the covers that I saw specifically said more dangerous than rollerball. Wow. <laughs> I mean, future sports are like almost always uh, a little more dangerous, mm-hmm. um, but uh, 
I want to say like there was something in that like 70s, 80s that uh, I don't know, really enjoyed that frame. No, yeah. Now, now I'm looking up The Running Man. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a Stephen King novel, right? The Running yeah. Man? Oh, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Uh, Just to go back to things that were adapted very differently from the source material. Uh, 1982. Oh, wow. I thought it was older than that. Okay. <laughs> no, that was, that. I mean, just, that, was just, just, that was just two years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so the description of his living room, I find really interesting because I have a hard time visualizing it. The angular furniture that reminded him of upturned reaching spires in a cave. I'm picturing like a lot of like red sort of mod stuff, like hmm. that hard shaped, like vinyl covered very monochromatic kind of stuff. Kind of brutalist. Yeah, like especially like Hollywood in the 70s. Right. That kind of stuff you would see in like people who are like trying to put forward the the air of artistry hmm. by having furniture that makes you uncomfortable to be around. <laughs> right. Or to sit on. Mm-hmm. That was more or less where my mind first went. But then I started thinking maybe he's talking more in terms of being cartoony and abstract furniture. Hmm. But I guess everything else is, well, apart from the jug with the three X's, is our worldly yep. style, like materials. Well, I think there's also sort of the the interplay of those concepts where like mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff does look like stuff that you or stuff that people did draw in cartoons because it's like sim- oh. very simple lines, very bright, like primary colors. That's a really good point. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, like the background painting scene that everything's animated over. Yeah. <laughs> it's very simplified and angular. Like uh, uh like you know which part of the 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 scenery will change just because yeah. it's slightly differently colored. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 door to the liquor cabinet is a bright flat color against the whole painted background. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh I don't know, there's something about upward reaching spires. Like I don't know. Well, actually, the the thing that struck me uh, about that description is that he describes it. So first there's like the cave reference and then he ends with like, oh, it's like a perfect burrow for a rabbit. But like, hmm. uh, I could be wrong. I never had a rabbit, uh, though I wanted one when I was a kid. But uh, I don't think like rabbits live in caves, right? They live in burrows and like right. burrows don't have stalagmites. So like there's something funny to me about that and it kind of feels a little judgy in a way yeah i think that eddie doesn't really understand rabbits yeah yeah but like like he's coming into it and like like it kind of has like a bachelor pad vibe Mm. like all the windows are closed like there's like nothing is clean exactly or like or or aired out but because he's not a human being eddie doesn't go like oh it's a typical like terrible bachelor pad you know or you know the the lair of a soon to be starving writer mm. uh, right you know it's it's it it fits into his prejudices against rabbits which brings us back morgan to your uh, earlier comments about uh about the social satire uh and like well yeah the yeah the racism lens yeah uh, or the, the and, lens on racism i should say right and i don't know how eddie valiant is portrayed in the book but in the movie he's prejudiced against uh, cartoon characters so i would presume that that is he's a prejudiced character in this book as well mm. and that's showing through yeah uh, it's so interesting just sorry sorry and sorry and and people mm-hmm. i mean 
people turn, tuning to this know we we're going to talk about the movie. We talked like yeah. for 30 minutes about the movie Jaws mm-hmm. uh, uh, on that episode. But it's curious to me that the movie version, so like Eddie Valiant, his brother was killed by a tune. So of course he has a prejudice against all tunes, mm-hmm. um, which like seems pretty accurate in a way of like how some people experience racism or mm-hmm. uh, experience race insofar as like if someone from an outgroup does something to you, you don't see that as an individ- as an individual. You see that as like a member of a group, right? Yeah. Right. Particularly if you're like, like primed culturally. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting. I remember I can't remember who it was, but someone who pointed out like the language of war tends to uh, adhere to those topics, hmm. as opposed to the language of like law and like l- legal issues. Like it's not like I'm going to sue this person. It's like we have to go to war against you know this this community, but. It is curious to me that in the movie, Eddie Valiant's arc is, uh, I'm racist against tunes, too. I got that one tune who, who did me wrong, uh, and now I like tunes, or something like that. Mm. Like, there, there, there is kind of like a, a, a Hollywoodified understanding of how people uh, overcome racism. Right. I mean, he literally gets immersed in their world by the end of the movie, where he's wandering around Toontown and only interacting with tunes. That's a very Hollywood approach to that yeah. of like coming to understand, as you put it, the out group. Hmm. Well, uh, was there any other uh, any other thoughts about this this first page or any final thoughts? We're we're coming up on time, right? Is usually when we go for another twenty or thirty minutes. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, my, I guess my final thoughts are I'm, I'm I'm very curious to know more, and I really I'm surprised at how much I enjoyed reading this one page. And yeah, I mean, I could definitely see this being a page turner. Yeah, like I'm very curious about what this looks like stretched out over the length of a novel. Yeah. Like it's the kind of thing that could be really interesting or could be very much of a slog. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to find out. It's a one joke concept that could get really tedious or could be really cleverly used. And I'm curious to know which way he's able to, which way that ends up going. Out of curiosity, do, uh, do either of you have any favorite noir pastiche or parody works? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I'm a big fan of Repo Man, which I feel like is a very like punk noir, neo-noir style movie mm. with its share of magical realism. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of that's based on it's Kiss Me Deadly with the whole of uh, the briefcase that glows when you open it, mm. um, which I also really like. Yeah. Uh, Brick is really good. If you've seen Brick. Brick is, fo- yeah, Brick is phenomenal. Which is a high school noir. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brick has, like, uh, like there, there, there's one line. I love uh, in, 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 in parodic works, if you can just use, like, a line straight up from something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, there, there's a scene with, like, the principal or vice principal where he, he gives, like, the rogue detective line. You know, like, like, so unless you want my badge, but it's not badge, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like, oh, that was a fun reuse of like that trope uh, yeah. in a different setting. But you're right. You know, one of one of my favorites, I haven't read it in a very long time, but there's a short story called Mr. Big. Um, uh, by Woody Allen. Mm. Hmm. Uh, and Vin, I hope you leave in the long pause before I said that name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
really, mm-hmm. real, real, really debating it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but basically, a private eye gets hired to find out uh, who killed God, and it's just like you know uh, a noir parody littered with uh, jokes about philosophy. Hmm. Uh, Interesting, and it is like a short story because, like, if it was a novel, you would imagine it being uh, unbearable. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny you say that because that reminds me of a novel with a very similar concept, uh, Douglas Adams' Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, mm. which has a detective who's uh, trying to solve the murder of one of the gods of Olympus. It might even be Zeus, but it's been so long since I've read it. Yep. And I remember it holding up pretty well. Um, not quite as much fun as uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, which is the first of the two in that series, but still pretty good. The, um, the Dirk Gently TV series is also pretty interesting, although very different. There's two. Which one? The there's a recent one with uh, uh, Frodo Baggins in it. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of the one with Stephen Stephen Mangum from like maybe five years ago, six years ago. Mm. Um, which is also kind of good, but then kind of goes off in its own direction and gets kind of weird. Yeah, I haven't reread that Adams in a very long time. Somewhat recently, I reread The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by recently, I mean in 1984. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like, I don't know if you if you all had this experience, but like, the, remember the first time I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the, Ga- the Galaxy, I was like, this is so funny. Uh, and like the last time I read it, I was like, oh, this is deeply depressed. Like mm-hmm. now I now I get the the like, like Marvin is actually the, the viewpoint character for for Douglas Adams. Yep. That is interesting. I haven't reread it in a long time, but I did get that when I got to the end, the last book of, that he wrote in that series. And it's so depressed. It's such a downer. Yeah. Well, I think that's that that was my experience. though. like, you know, like having that first book in my memory as like, oh, that one was funny. And then later he got like depressed or depressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I reread the first one. And I was like, oh, no, it's all there. Yeah. Uh, it's me that got depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like uh, uh, I, I'm trying to work in some uh, Sunset Boulevard uh, dialogue here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not Hitchhiker's Guide. It was me who got depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so you guys would would definitely read the second page on this. Yeah, 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 definitely. If only for the tale of Tune Prohibition. Yeah. So Morgan, where can people find you and your stuff online? Um, they can go to morganpla.com, which I update every couple of years. <laughs> More recently, I uh, did. Uh, I contributed to a, a poor charity comics anthology for, um, for the Hero Initiative for uh, COVID relief, and the anthology is called uh, Pandemics. So pandemic, and but like with mix at the end. Mm. Uh, so people can find that. I'm not sure where there was a GoFundMe or Patreon up, but it's since ended. So you may just have to look Google Pandemics. Um, and then apart from that, I occasionally perform. Uh, most recently, I've got a couple of shows coming up at QED up in Astoria, New York, for those who are in the area. Um, I don't remember when. <laughs> Sometime in a couple of weeks. That's okay. I have no idea when this episode is coming out. Yeah, I'm, live stuff is pointless. So yeah, pandemics would be the thing, I guess. You'll be performing sometime in 1986. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Periodically, you can find me somewhere around the city. Thanks for joining us on Dark and Stormy Nights. I've been your host, Finn LeBate, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Reciprocity. You can find the games that I write at MrReciprocity.itch.io. 
And you can find my other podcast, The Chimera, at thechimera.space or on Twitter at ChimeraPod or on your podcast app of choice. And I've been your other host, Ben Blattberg. You can find me on Twitter at InCatastrophe. For show updates, follow Dark Knights Reads on Twitter or visit darknightsreads.com. And we'll meet you back here next week, weather permitting. <laughs>